0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers God's Vision for You to Thrive
1: in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage. Written and narrated by pastor and best selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. This is Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. (laughs) I had you go in there. This is not Tyler Burns. This is Jamar Tisby, Tyler's co-host. And Tyler sends his regrets. He's uh, traveling today. His travel plans got changed a little bit. And so he cannot be on the podcast. But I figured, you know, we're used to Tyler introing the show. And he's got such great uh, uh, podcast personality that... I would try to emulate him. It's the best form of flattery. However, I don't think I pulled it off unless I fooled you for a couple of seconds. But uh, I'm excited about the show today. We have a special guest on with us who I'll intro in just a minute. But I do want to take time out and recognize that on October 31st, which you may alternatively celebrate as Halloween Day or Reformation Day, I celebrate Ranniversary. Uh, the Reformed African-American Network officially launched on October 31st, 2011. So October 31st, 2016 marks our five-year anniversary. Uh, it has been an incredible journey. I remember sitting with my laptop in the dining room. It was 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I had just created a Facebook page for this thing called the Reformed African American Network, and I was about to press enter. And I just had this feeling that once we put it out there and made it public, it was going to be well beyond whatever I could predict. And that has been true. Um, But throughout the years, God has been so faithful to this ministry. He's brought along amazing people, uh, like Tyler Burns, like Bo York, our producer, like Elodie Quitton, who um, manages the website, uh, a board of directors. We're a 501c3 now. Um, between our two social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter, we have almost 20,000 uh, likes and follows. We have almost one and a half million views on the website. Um, and uh, things are going well. So thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to all of our readers and supporters and friends as the Reformed African-American Network celebrates five years. Um, With that, let me introduce our guest. We have, many of you will know him by his books and through his ministry, we have uh, Dr. Sung Chan Ra with us. He is the Milton B. Eng. Britson Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He has written several books. Probably his most well-known are uh, The Next Evangelicalism and Prophetic Lament, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, But I have been a huge fan of Dr. Ra's work. He has um, been a very valuable voice, particularly in sort of theologically conservative and or evangelical spheres to bring different perspectives from uh, racial and ethnic uh, minorities and other groups. So, Dr. Ra, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. So glad to be on the show absolutely absolutely so you are at north park which is in the chicago area they That's didn't right. give you guys a day off today when, after the <laughs> day after the cubs win the world series Well, it was a very late night last night for sure. So we're on the north side. So
0: we're a couple of miles away from the stadium. Uh, And of course, this town is going kind of crazy right now after 108 years of of drought. Uh, The Cubs finally win the World Series. So
1: yeah, definitely, this is a, a riled up town right now, given the circumstances. Now, were you out in the festivities? Were you in the streets or at a bar or something? (laughs) No, I was not. I actually flew back from a conference yesterday, (laughs) and the flight
0: uh, was delayed two hours. For the two hours I was on the flight was actually the most the game occurred during those two hours. Oh, no. So we land, and we're taxiing, and for a number of different reasons, it took about half an hour to get to our gate. And now everybody, of course, has their phones out. (laughs) <laughs> and it was that half hour where the score went from 6-3 to 6-6. Oh. So the plane is just going nuts. There's cursing all around me. People are you know <laughs> getting upset because we're all getting updates on our phone as the score goes from 6-3 to 6-6. But
1: I got home in time to watch the last couple of innings and watch the uh, the Cubs take it. Oh, very good, very good. Glad to hear that. And uh, I'm from the Chicago area, Waukegan, Illinois. All right, way up north of y'all. So I am very much missing it uh, right now. I would love to be able to celebrate with all my Chicago yes. and North Side friends. Plus, it was it was like it was like a storybook kind of game. It's something you'd put in a movie. It's Game Seven. That's it's right. winner takes all. It goes into extra innings yep. of all yep. things. What a game! <laughs> And mean. then the rain
0: delay, and then the players hold a players-only meeting to try to come back from that
1: devastating home run. Exactly, and it, out. it is storybook, definitely storybook. Look, we need to buy the rights or something. Let's yeah. just—I've I've never made a movie, but this is a movie waiting to be made. So. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Well, let's get into it. Um, Tell us a little bit about your field. So you're a professor, um, uh, a minister. Tell us sort of your interests and um, what leads you to emphasize the things that you do.
0: Yeah, so I teach at a seminary, and I think one of the things I really enjoy about seminary is that it's an academic environment, and there's kind of the academic rigor and thinking through things from a scholarly perspective. Uh, but also, we're not just doing academics for the sake of academics. We're really uh, looking into scholarship and academics for the sake of ministry. So I've really been fortunate to have education that try to balance both of those areas. Uh, I have an MDiv that allowed me to learn the very basic, uh, important things uh, pastoral and ministry theology, uh, but I also have a THM that focused on kind of an academic discipline uh, and then a doctorate of ministry and a doctorate in theology. Uh, So in in the work that I've done in the academic world, I've tried to balance between uh, work that I hope is of high scholarship and that um, looks at the rigors of the academic world uh, but if, if it just stays there for me, it feels really dead. It feels really uh, stifling. So I want to make sure that the uh, the work that I do, the scholarly work that I do, really is able to speak into the ministry context, uh, into the real world, so to speak. Uh, and that's where seminary and my writing, I hope, goes, uh, that it's hopefully good scholarly work. But it's also be uh, to be able to speak into the church
1: and into the Christian community. You're, I mean you're tracking right along with um some of the things that I've thought that mm. you know I'm I'm pursuing a a doctorate in history right now and Excellent. I mean the the reality is I I love the discipline but I'm particularly interested in in how it will impact the real world today and so That's right. it's not just an intellectual you know endeavor it's it's really for Christians it's part of a vocational pursuit a way yeah. to serve and glorify God so and I think you've been Pretty successful in um, combining this this really rigorous research with practical and applicable uh, outcomes. I know personally that your, your your books in particular have had a massive impact, and we'll talk about those in a second. Mm. But you have some some pretty, um, I think, extremely interesting and timely interests. So you're you're focused on the urban context, mm-hmm. and you're also focused on. Uh, issues of diversity and multi-ethnicity within. Yeah. So tell us a little about that. So
0: my um, my doctorate of ministry uh, at Gordon carnwell focused on urban ministry, uh, and I was an urban pastor for many many years. I worked in the Boston Cambridge area as a church planter, as uh, an urban pastor, as a as a campus minister. Uh, and I grew up in the city. I grew up in the inner city of Baltimore, and I went to college in New York City. Uh, so I've uh, my ministry and my heart has always been for the city, and I really appreciated doing that kind of uh, study in the field of ministry, but uh, particularly urban ministry. And that's what I teach at North Park as well. I teach an urban ministry certificate. We have a doctorate in urban ministry. Uh, North Park is one of the few evangelical seminaries that uh, stuck around in the city. Many of the seminaries left and moved out to the burbs. Uh, North Park made an intentional commitment to be an urban seminary. Um, at the same time, my my, my, my doctorate is, is also in uh, history and theology. Uh, uh, what I did, The work that I did at Duke was actually focusing on African-American evangelical history, uh, And that, to me, is also very uh, near and dear to my heart. I'm trying to understand uh, how American religion gets to where it is and trying to learn from our history uh, uh, to theologize on our historical reality. Uh, And I think that oftentimes gets missed. And there's some good work that needs to be done on that. And so my dissertation focuses on an area of ministry that has oftentimes been ignored,
1: which is African-American evangelicals uh, in the 20th century. Wow, that is mind-blowing. I love it. I would love to read more about that, and I'm sure our <laughs> listeners would, too. That's right up our alley. Um, you wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism, subtitled mm-hmm. Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's an extremely provocative title. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what motivated you to write that, and, and maybe just, you know, the the paragraph— thesis of it. sure. Sure.
0: Well, I'll give you a little backstory. So that's my first book. came out in 2008, I believe. Uh, and it, I, I transitioned to teach here at North Park in 06. And so that gave me a little more time to put my thoughts into more of a, a book form. And so that book came out in 2008 But I was uh, the first two years, I was kind of pitching that book to publishers. And the original title that I had for the book was actually not the next evangelicalism. It was called The White Captivity of the Church. So uh, <laughs> somewhere out there in, in in the publishing world, there's a uh, a book uh, proposal with my name on it that says the title that I want this book to be is The White Captivity of the Church. Uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, the publisher, says, uh, publisher said, well, why don't we go with this title instead, The Next Evangelicalism. It will have a broader appeal. Uh, people won't just turn the book down right off the bat. Uh, my wife was very convincing. She said, you're working really hard on this book. You want to sell more than just a couple of copies. Uh, so make the title and uh, something that will be attractive to uh, as broad an audience as possible. Yes. Uh, so the intention there was actually the, the by the publisher, my editor, uh, is to to make it a reflection of the next Christendom, uh, and, and actually Philip Jenkins did a very nice endorsement for the next evangelicalism, uh, and the next Christendom was um, was one of the books that popularized this notion, this important historical reality, that global Christianity was on the rise, that we were not looking at a Western, North american century Christianity anymore, but that if we looked at the whole of Christianity, we really had to look at uh, African, Asian, and Latin American Christianity as the new center and locus of Christianity, Uh, And I wanted to do something similar by looking at American Christianity, particularly evangelicalism, uh, to say that um – what we defined as American evangelical Christianity in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which was so shaped by white, upper-middle class, uh, suburban male uh, you know, uh, Christians, that's what defined evangelicalism for so long. But in the next stage of evangelicalism, the typical face of Christianity is really going to be uh, Latinos and uh, African-Americans and Asian-Americans and Native Americans, and that the diversity in Christianity uh, in America was actually actually going to, in my opinion, save Christianity rather than diminish it. And I think that's proven to be true over the last 10 years where we've seen the decline of Christianity in the West, mostly among the white suburban middle-class communities, but the rise of Christianity in the West has been among the immigrant uh, ethnic and multi-ethnic churches.
1: If we had like a video camera that could show the faces of our listeners, I'm sure you would beginning amens and nods for that whole thing <laughs> how 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 did first of all how do you define evangelicalism and secondly how did it come so wrapped up with uh, really white white America white middle class and upper class America yeah that's one of the tragedies of
0: I think uh, maybe the inability of of uh, American Christians to Uh, to self-define and not allow others to define who we are. Um, And if you look at historical evangelicalism, and we're going back not just in terms of American history, but just kind of this whole scope of of, uh, uh, church history, uh, we can kind of trace the evangelical roots in America all the way back to the beginning of the church where there was this... Deep commitment to scripture, deep commitment to fellowship. Obviously, you know, Christology was at the center of their understanding of the world. Uh, some very basic theological truths that have uh, have, have been a thread throughout all of church history, and we clearly see it in the early church. We see it in the Puritans. We see it in the Reformation. Uh, we see it in uh, in the in the uh, in someone like Patrick, uh, Saint Patrick. We see it in uh, the rise of the church in uh, in other parts of, uh, of non-European nations. So. So, if we look at the thread of history, there are these theological central themes that have been very important to identifying uh, uh, Christians through a particular lens. Um, And that has, if we define it theologically, evangelicalism can be defined in very theological terms. Uh, Things I've already outlined, you know, the high view of Scripture, uh, the the really deep and um, significant understanding of Jesus as both fully divine and human, Uh, just some basic theological truths that have shape the church, uh, a, a real sense of activism that our faith should not be dormant, but we should really act upon our faith. Um, these are the things that I would characterize as a theological evangelicalism that has been an important thread throughout church history and then maybe kind of culminates in the, uh, in in kind of uh, the last uh, hundred years in the church. Uh, the problem, though, is that evangelicalism began to be co-opted by a sociological definition and and more recently, of course, by a political definition. Um, I'll exemplify this by saying I got a phone call from a Wall Street Journal reporter a few years ago, and she was doing an article on uh, the diversity of evangelicalism, and she wanted to get a quote from me about uh, Christianity uh, in America. And a 30-minute interview, at the end of the interview, I, I, I kind of wanted to know how she got interested in writing about evangelical Christianity, because she was the main beat reporter for evangelicals for the Wall Street Journal. Journal. So I asked her, you know, are you evangelical? Are you a Christian? And she said, I'm not a Christian. I said, I'm mm-hmm. Jewish. Uh, and I said, how did you end up writing, being the main author and writer for all articles about evangelicalism? <laughs> yeah. And she said, well, I was a political science major. And uh, this newspaper felt that my background in political science equipped me to write about evangelical Christianity. So that's where we had come to. We had come to a place where evangelicalism, you didn't need any theological background. You didn't even need to have an understanding of Christianity to write for a major national newspaper. You had to be a political science major. So that's how far we've drifted away from the real root definition of
1: evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings up a really great point. Um, this term evangelical has become contested. and like you say, there are some classic formulations that we can look really at the theology and most Christians wouldn't have any problem calling themselves evangelical from that perspective. but as you say, it's been wrapped up in politics and race. Yeah. And so you know one question I have it sounds kind of basic, but it's a real struggle. If you are not white, but you subscribe to the same sort of theological um, distinctives that might describe evangelical, what do you call yourself? <laughs> well, that's where it's really interesting. My, my dissertation. Uh, on
0: black evangelical Christianity. So there's a moment in in the 1970s where the the term evangelical is being brought out into the national media and national uh, understanding. So Newsweek and Time, uh, this is when Carter is getting elected, who calls himself an evangelical. So out there in the larger world, uh, people are talking about this term evangelical. Uh, It is around that time that you see the rise of this term in kind of secular usage, uh, that there is actually a group of African American evangelicals, black evangelicals, uh, who, if you look at their theological, you know, kind of metrics, lines up perfectly with what we would call kind of the white evangelical movement. And so these African-American evangelicals had no distinction in terms of their theological categories from white evangelicals. And these are very significant leaders. Uh, some of the names might be familiar, the Tom Skinners, the Bill Pinnells, uh, Carl Ellis, uh, Elwood yes. Ellis. You know, these are, these are folks who are still around, John Perkins. These would be folks who if you look through their theological categories, and you went down a checklist to say what makes you a theological evangelical, Every single one of them, they would check correctly. Uh, If you gave them a test, they would pass with flying colors to be identified as a theological evangelical. But what we found is that these African-American evangelicals, when they start talking about social justice issues, when they start talking about racial justice issues, the larger evangelical movement rejects them. Uh, the, the, The best case scenario or the worst case scenario or the best example of this would be Tom Skinner. Uh, who some uh, know was just one of the most amazing evangelists of his time. Uh, He was a gang leader that converts to Christianity. He has this amazing, inspirational, uh, evangelistic conversion story that a gang leader stops being a gang leader and becomes a street evangelist. He leads thousands of people to Christ. Um, He's the African-American Billy Graham. He's actually asked to speak at Graham uh, Graham gatherings, and uh, he speaks at Christian colleges, Wheaton. He has a radio program on Moody. And he is the kind of quintessential African-American an evangelical who's passionate about evangelism, who has this amazing conversion story. But then what happens is that he starts talking about race a little bit more. And you can see this. You can document this in a a series of sermons he gives at Wheaton College, a sermon that he gives at Urbana, the mission conference in in 1969, 1970, into the early 1970s. Amazing. You've got to go hear that sermon that he gives at Urbana in 1970. Absolutely amazing True to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet very, very sensitive and thoughtful about race relations in America. And clearly in the 60s and 70s, you can't help but talk about race in America. But what happens is that Skinner is essentially uh, booted out of evangelical Christianity uh, because of his – His kind of adamancy about addressing racial issues. So he'll speak about uh, race issues, and then the next year, that Christian college would not invite him back to speak again. Uh, He stops, you know, some of the financial support stops coming. Uh, Essentially, he gets drummed out of evangelical Christianity. Um, Initially, people were saying, well, it's because he got divorced, and, you know, back then they didn't know how to handle uh, a, a prominent leader like him getting divorced. What I found is that he actually got divorced in 1977, and oh. by 1972 he was already out. All the wow. invitations had been revoked. He was not being asked to speak at these Christian colleges. The the racial issue is what drove him out of American evangelicalism, not the fact of his divorce. So this is where uh, the larger evangelical movement in, in in the in the 70s, anyway, in their anxiety about having to. And their inability to deal with racial justice, economic justice issues, instead of being able to embrace this person who, as I said, theologically would check every single marker for what defines that person as an evangelical, still was drummed out of evangelicalism mainly because of their view and their
1: stance on race. Whew. Oh, man, this is so <laughs> timely. Um, and what great research. And I think, uh, you know, your, your, your assessments certainly resonate with some of mm. the things I've seen and experienced even in 2016. So, yes. uh, that's an interesting, uh, dynamic of how much things change and how much they stay the same. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we're talking about evangelicalism, uh, we'll, we'll circle back to this topic, but yeah. you talked about evangelicals and justice, hmm. and that sort of brings us to your next book, Prophetic Lament, yeah. A, Call, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times. Now, this is yeah. just, what, 2015 that yeah. you published it. So what was your burden for writing that book?
0: Yeah. So actually, let me add one more thing to that. In that uh, in 2016, so Prophetic Lament came out in 2015. Uh, My latest, latest book actually came out in 2016. And that book is called Return to Justice. And it was co-authored with my friend who did his dissertation on um, uh, world vision and global attempts at justice uh, through evangelical Christianity. And so uh, I have a chapter in that book about black evangelicalism. But we were looking at the historical ways that evangelicals engage justice issues. But Prophetic Lament came out in 2015, and there was an an obvious timeliness to this because what I did was I looked at the Book of Lamentations, um, a very understudied or underexplored book of the Bible, especially among evangelicals. I looked at the Book of Lamentations through the lens of racial and social justice and urban ministry and said, okay, here's the scripture. uh, Here's a passage that speaks a lot about Jerusalem, about suffering, about the marginalized, um, about the voiceless. Let's interpret that through that lens then and understand. Lamentations through the lens of urban social racial justice issues Uh, and so that was the intent to say let's be true to scripture and so I I hope I did a good job of doing an accurate exegesis of the book of Lamentations but then how is this going to preach? How is this speaking to what's going on in the world around us? And again the timeliness of it of course is the fact that this is being written at the time of Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Philander Castile and Rekia Boyd and all the names that go on and on and on um, that we have had had a tragedy of of race relations in America and our inability to lament and operate out of that brokenness of lament has caused uh,
1: an inability by the church in America to deal with the race problem in America. Talk about, if you would, the idea of how do, how do justice and lament mm. interact. Yeah, well, the lament, the practice of lament is
0: powerful because it's one of the places where the human condition is brought to the forefront, right? So we have to understand the human condition. And of course, there is a human individual brokenness that we identify as sin, the fallen nature of humanity. And so we are very quick to jump to that place as the reason for for the need for our salvation. Of course, we're broken as individuals. I would never disagree with that. That's the reason why I'm a Christian because of this individual expression of grace towards my human sinfulness and brokenness. But we also have to understand that there's brokenness in our society, that there are injustices in our society. And the hyper-individualism of Western culture prevents us oftentimes from seeing the brokenness in the world around us. So my provost here at North Park is Michael Emerson. And many of us are familiar with the work that. Uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith did. I they reference, yeah, <laughs> I reference that
1: book like every other yes. podcast. If it not is more. a powerful book.
0: Yeah. And so That's Michael is our provost here at North, North Park. And what uh, what they write about is this hyper-individualism that prevents evangelicals from engaging the issue of justice or especially the issue of race. And so what I'm looking at in the book of Lamentations is that one of the more powerful things about Lamentations is that it offers a corporate voice that speaks to the powers that be about an injustice that is going on around them. So lament is the voice of the voiceless. So the most marginalized people are allowed to speak up against the powerful, against those uh, in authority, uh, even if that authority is God. Uh, So it gives voice to the voiceless, which is one of the, I think a critical aspect of of justice ministries uh, that for so long we have privileged the privileged voices Uh, and we have elevated the privileged voices, that their perspective determines how the rest of the world views the underprivileged, or unprivileged, or the marginalized. And so there comes a moment where we have to actually offer that alternative narrative as a church, to say, what are the voices of the marginalized that speak about justice, because the voice of the privileged have a perspective that might not necessarily line up with the voice of the oppressed.
1: So what time are you teaching your next class? Cause I got to catch my flight right up there and just sit and soak in this for a while. Wow. I mean, Dr. Rod, that is just so right up, um, uh, on, on the same, uh, topics that, that we've been talking about for several years now during this podcast. So it's so helpful for you to hear that. Now I'm going to spring a question on you. It's related, but mm-hmm. maybe off the cuff you have to answer. So, um, in in my denomination, we're we're dealing with the idea of not corporate lament per se, but corporate repentance. Mm. And so it, it specifically in regards to the civil rights movement. And so some ask the question, can we actually repent of sins that we didn't do? And mm. in, in specific reference, that my denomination was started in nineteen seventy-three, so this is after the height of the civil rights movement. Right. And so some are raising the question, can you can you even repent for those things that occurred before? for your time, sure, um, sure. how would you respond to that? Well, I'll give two separate kind of angles on this.
0: One is my personal experience and story, uh, which is because uh, I get that question a lot. Uh, And I'll give you an example. I was uh, speaking at Harvard University one year, and it was a gathering of Asian-American Christians at Harvard University. And I was talking about this idea of corporate lament, especially over the atrocities of the enslavement of the African-American and the genocide of the Native American. And I'm talking about this and the need to repent for these atrocities. And I can see in the room of Asian-American college students that they're not getting this, Uh, and I can understand why, because as an Asian American, you know, who came to the U.S. in 1973, um, I wasn't here when all this went down. You know, if there's anybody who could say, I've never owned a slave, I've never killed the Native American or took their land, that's me. I came here way after the fact. So as an Asian, I'm, 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 I'm not guilty uh, on all counts here. Uh, but what I pointed out to these Harvard students at, at, uh, at, uh, uh, at uh, Asian American Harvard students is, um, well, you're on land that at one time belonged to Native Americans. Uh, your, your buildings have been built on an economy that was based upon the slave economy and the exploitation of free labor from Africa. So your ability to sit in a classroom at this prestigious university is not not coming out of the blue. It's coming out of a historical context that exploited the labor of African-Americans and exploited the land of Native Americans and, and, and the genocide of Native Americans. So if we are beneficiaries of an unjust system, then we are culpable to that injustice system as well. So, as an Asian American, I can never say, "Well, I showed up," you know, many years after the enslavement of Africans and the genocide of natives. No, I still benefit from that system that enslaved Africans and uh, and and killed Native Americans. And so, as a beneficiary of that system, I still need to acknowledge my culpability in a system of injustice, even if I personally never. Uh, did the acts that created that system in the first place. I'm still a beneficiary of that. Um, I think that um, uh, should kind of move us towards out of that hyper-individualism that says as individuals, we are only responsible for our individual actions. Uh, And this is where I really try to challenge the idea of white guilt as unproductive and unhelpful. Uh, Because the idea of white guilt is very individualistic. And you feel guilty about what an individual act you did. So example, 10 years ago, I, uh, you know, I thought the N-word. And I feel really bad about it. I feel guilty. And so this year, to resolve, uh, resolve this guilt feeling that I have from 10 years ago, I'm going to take the King holiday off for sure. I'm not going to huh. go to work. I'm going to go golfing and, and commemorate that day. And so I did that one thing that absolves me of the white guilt that I experienced from that act 10 years right. ago. Right. And that is how we usually think of, you know, dealing with racism. You know, how do we get rid of guilt? Instead of maybe the idea is more the idea of shame, which is a biblical concept to me. The use of the shame word shame is limited in our English translations, but the concept of shame is deeply ingrained in scripture. Mm. The idea of shame is not that just that one individual committed a bad act ten years ago and you fix it 10 years later. But that there is a pervasiveness of that sin in the structures and systems that we live in, so much so that a simple apology, a simple, uh, I'm sorry, or or even more realistically, a simple, I wasn't there when it happened, is not enough. It's not sufficient. And so when we talk about not white guilt, which again, to me is unhelpful, but the idea of a corporate shame of racism, then we're dealing with, okay, even though I wasn't there in 1965, even though I wasn't there in uh, 1864, um, I still benefit from that system. And I should feel ashamed for being a part of that system.
1: I think that's so helpful. and it, I think, though, one of the things that um, I find challenging is in- – in conveying that concept is that one also has to have an understanding of sort of systemic and institutional yeah. injustice, um, which, you know, Divided by Faith also talks about, which your books certainly talk about, that these practices, which at one point were were very deliberate in terms of excluding certain people, that, that was at the forefront of folks' mind, but over generations— And through change laws and whatnot, that has become less explicit. Nevertheless, we still benefit from these systems that are constructed to our advantage, particularly if you're white and male. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, those are are just some of the the, the basic understandings that I think get at what you're saying. And Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for folks to grasp it if – if we don't also acknowledge the existence, the, uh, the reality that systems and structures can also perpetuate injustice. And so we have to yes. attack it on the structural level, Yes, um, which sort of brings me to a question about diversity, um, mm. And and you know just a personal anecdote. I remember one of my professors in seminary assigned us the book "The Next Evangelicalism," which I was excited about because I already had the book. Um, I was just I, I had gotten it on my own, and now I could get you know credit for reading it. So that was that was a happy uh, coincidence. But um, it, what also struck me was it was. It was one of the only books by a non-white author that mm-hmm. we read in my entire seminary career, wow. not just that, you know, semester or something. And, uh, you know, granted, we're, we're reading books from antiquity, and, mm-hmm. and so... Uh, It's not completely homogenous, but it has been often a topic that there's a decided lack of racial and ethnic diversity in our churches, our colleges, in our seminaries um, Mm. from a Christian perspective. So, you know, in in your view, sort of what's the state of diversity um, in, in evangelicalism and from sort of an institutional perspective, what do we have to do to start to turn those things around?
0: Yeah, wow, that's a, that's the question of the hour uh, for those of us who are in seminary education or we're thinking about theological education for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I speak at enough Christian colleges to know some of the trend lines at these Christian colleges um, and Christian education institutions. Uh, what happens is that in 1990, a Christian college had an enrollment of 2,000, and they were 90% white students and 90% uh, white faculty. Uh, And then in 2015, they still have 90% white faculty and 90% white students. Uh, but their enrollment is down to about 500. Uh, And if that trend line continues, then they're going to be out of business in about five years. And I've been to enough small Christian colleges that have been around for almost 100 years who are on their last breath because they have not understood the reality, the practical reality of of diversity. So it almost feels like there's so many different ways to approach this to say, one, theologically, you've got to understand the value of diversity. But practically, you've got to understand the value of diversity uh, and that without understanding and appreciating and knowing how to deal with diversity, you're just not dealing with reality. Uh, and the reality of what the world is looking like now, and the world will continue to look like. So the current state is that we've got a, a, quite a long ways to go. We've got quite a long ways to go uh, to to make sure that my, minority faculty are uh, are intentionally supported and helped and 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 financed uh, so that uh, they're not leaving these Christian institutions and not leaving seminaries uh, to to appreciate. The different uh, perspective that minority faculty might bring, uh, and a different uh, contribution that they might make, uh, and to see that as just as legitimate as, as the contributions of the traditional fields of study in theology and in uh, in seminary education. Um, but you know, educational institutions move notoriously slow; uh, they're glacial in, in in their ability to change. Um, but at the same time, the the societal movement is so quick. Uh, and churches, sadly, the churches have adapted faster uh, than many seminaries have. And we're going to have to maybe step up the pace a little bit more. Um, I see it in my role in theological creation on two fronts. One uh, is that uh, as uh, as someone who kind of moved into the in academic scholarship, uh, that I need to get the best that I can, and I need to put out the best that I can. Uh, so, you know, Um, I, I'm, I wanted to get the best degrees that I can and to be at the institutions where I could present the credentials to the world that, um, I actually am not skimping on my education. I'm trying to get at the best institutions like Columbia and Harvard and Duke. And at the same time, I'm also trying to get the sound, um, uh evangelical education like gordon conwell uh so i need to almost doubly prove my credibility uh it's not fair it's not right but i realize that that's what i have to do as a scholar of color wow uh, yeah that's just the reality that's just the sure. game that we're in. Uh the other part is that as a as now I'm you know I'm 48 I'm I'm not old yet but as an as someone who's been in this a little bit longer now how do I support and raise up other scholars of color who are kind of coming off behind uh, who are now in their 20s and 30s how do I support them uh, of what it means to be uh, an academic scholar of color in in the Christian academy, uh, so uh, there's a there's an extra burden that many of us have to to carry uh, the burden of trying to uh, cons- consistently persistently put our worth out there, uh, which go to me it goes against my Asian sensibilities to put my worth out there. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, how do I support those who are coming up behind me? Uh, and so for many scholars of color in in the Christian world. We're playing double, triple, quadruple duty. Uh, and that can be a, a significant burden uh, of trying to represent not only Christian faith, not only your discipline and field and excel in that, but also to be the Korean scholar on this topic, the black scholar on this topic. Uh, and that's where the added burden oftentimes comes in. Uh, what it does do is that it ups my game. I have to constantly be aware that uh, I'm, I'm under the microscope. Um I, I tell the story just not to not to kind of put focus on myself, but, you know, when I first started teaching, um, I had students come up to me, and this is, you know, I have two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees, come up to me on the first day of class and say, I- I'm not going to learn anything from you. Uh, And I'm like, what (laughs) exactly? I'm like, wait, wait, my 15 years of ministry experience, my two masters and my two doctorates don't mean anything. Uh, You know, and I've had students tell me, well, you probably got this job because you're Korean and they need the diversity on the faculties. Again, my two masters, my two doctorates, my degrees from Duke, Gordon-Conwell, Harvard and Columbia. That means nothing. I just got this job because I'm a Korean. Mm. Uh, I've had a faculty colleague tell me, well, you're not really qualified to teach this course. And I'm like, you mean my doctorate? research doctorate in this field does not qualify me to teach this course so you know those are the stories that that you know faculty of color kind of have to live into and we just Sometimes we grin and bear it, and sometimes we just grit our teeth and and and, and move along. Uh, and then there are other times we just want to punch a wall <laughs> or, yes. a punch, or a punching bag in, a, in the basement of my house. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we do what we need to do. Uh, and what motivates me oftentimes is that those that are coming up behind, those who are now in their 20s and 30s, someone like yourself who want to commit to this academic work, um, can we pave a way so that the next hire is not never going to be seen as oh they're hired just because they're a minority, uh, because the previous hire was it was very clear that that person was not hired just because they were a mi- minority. They were overqualified for that position. Uh, so diversity as a as a person of color as a scholar of color. Um, it's it's a heavy burden to 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 carry, and I know many other scholars of color feel the same way. Uh, and I would add, especially women uh, faculty of color, that's yes. just like a yes. triple duty, yeah. quadruple duty that they have to that they have to uh, carry. Uh, so my heart is, is 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 breaks for for especially women of color in the academy. Uh, but how can we actually acknowledge that? It's not a straight path for many of us who are coming into this, um, and so that when you say, "Well, you only have a demon, you only have and not a Ph.D.", yeah, but for for certain in certain time periods, the demon was the only thing that was accessible for 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 many. It was the only affordable degree that many yeah. could get. Uh, it was the only option. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, or on, you've only written this book for this publisher rather than this publisher. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, that's because that was the only option available t- for us. And and uh, so I think um, we have to take into account the kind of the double, triple burden that many scholars after of color carry in bringing diversity into these institutions.
1: It's so good to hear you say all that, um, because I know other folks uh, in in a similar situation to me, you know, it, it, we've studied it at at uh, Christian institutions. We're pursuing education. We're, what we're doing is pursuing all of the sort of um, the, the degrees and the qualifications that yeah. will get your foot in the door. Yeah. But like you're saying, it, it's this double, triple, quadruple burden of being yeah. You know, the first uh, of uh, in your network to do it of um, finances of mm-hmm. uh, not having the social and the and the, and the um, cultural connections of uh, being a racial minority, being a woman, all of those things. So, I can just say, you know, you even articulating that is 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 ministering to mm-hmm. me and folks like me I know, and really even coming on the show and and supporting us in this way mm-hmm. is. I think a way that you're supporting um, the generation that's that's going to follow you. So I definitely appreciate that. Let's talk about one more topic, which you are right. eminently qualified to discuss. Um, we're talking about evangelicals, and uh, of course they've been uh, in all kinds of headlines during this latest election cycle between. Yeah. Us. Uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and so yeah. you know, there's a whole lot we can uh, <laughs> dive into there. But uh, let me just ask you: it, it, when it says you know X percentage of evangelicals support Donald Trump, I yeah. mean, what does that mean to you? And and does that term evangelical yeah. carry any water anymore? Wow, that's that's uh,
0: very important in this in this season. Uh, Well, you know, the numbers that were there most recently showed a pretty strong disconnect. So uh, for a while, the most stubborn group to leave Trump support were white evangelicals. Uh, It was at 80 percent very strongly and solidly for several, several months, even with all the other stuff going on, his comments about Mexican rapists, his comments about barring all Muslims, his comments about we're going to stop and frisk black and brown people. I mean, th- and, and you know, all sorts of comments. And the only time it really budged was when the comments were made about kind of sexual assault, mostly of white women. Uh, so that's kind of telling in and of itself that um, any kind of negative you know, uh, slanderous remarks about minorities and, and other people groups are acceptable, but Hey man, when you start attacking white women, that's the final line that you can't cross Donald Trump. And so now we're going to start pulling our support. Uh, but even then the support among white evangelicals did not decline a whole lot. It went from about 80% to about 60, 67, 68%, something like that. 70%. Um, Among white evangelicals, what they did show is that among non-white evangelicals, and this is the category that you and I would fall into, uh, certainly Latino uh, uh, evangelicals, uh, those who I, those of us who identify with evangelicalism, not as a political category, but as a very theological ecclesial category, uh, those numbers were almost flipped the exact opposite direction. So if 70% of white evangelicals are supporting Trump, 70% are opposed to Trump or would not vote for Trump. And I don't think it specified who they would vote for, but they were very clear they would not vote for Trump. Uh, so what we're seeing is that kind of flipping over of these numbers where white evangelicals um, are not as offended by these comments against Mexicans, against blacks, against disabled, against, uh, you know, until it came to, you know, we're going to, he wanted to sexually assault white women, Uh, whereas uh, minority evangelicals, uh, Asian, Latino, African American, we saw all along that this person was a predator. We saw all along that this person's rhetoric, that he was retweeting comments from white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups. We saw all along that this person was unfit for the presidency. And so we didn't need the, uh, the, the bus incident to tell us that this person was unqualified. We saw the signals all along. My concern would be white evangelicals, why didn't you see these signals earlier than this? Right. Uh, because these comments were always there. Uh, and so it wasn't, it was only when it came down to you're going to assault our women that that became the trigger. For white evangelicals to say, "Oh no, I have a I have a daughter. Oh no, I have a wife," uh, and that's fine. I think that's a legitimate response. But what it showed was this ignoring of all this other stuff that had been said and done prior to that. The fact that he was, you know, pointing out minorities in his crowd and 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 they were being persecuted, literally persecuted, physically assaulted uh, by neo Nazis. Uh, you know, I mean, this was this is unbelievable, crazy stuff. And yet the numbers for white evangelicals did not budge at all. Uh, whereas non-white evangelicals, we saw this a long time ago and said, this person is inciting hate. This person is clearly not a Christian. He's been married three times. You know, you can make up all this stuff about he said some right words. The cursed person does not believe in confession, of, confession and asking for forgiveness from God. Uh, we saw through this the whole time. Um, and I think that's where the frustration is where political allegiances uh, were stronger than the body of Christ. Mm. So if I, even if, uh, if I were, and you know, I don't think he said anything specific about Asians, but man, when he said something about my uh, African American brothers, when he said something about my Latino brothers and sisters, Mm. then that disqualifying him for me right off the bat. It's like, I'm not going to vote for someone who sees my brothers and sisters in Christ in this way, who, who, who spews hatred towards specific members of my community who I you know, want to honor as my dear brothers and sisters. And if he is speaking that way towards my brothers and sisters, I'm not going to honor him by elevating him to the highest position in the land. Uh, but others didn't see that. And I think the people of color, we saw um, this pattern of denigrating people. Uh, it, was, it was there all along. Uh, and
1: I think maybe we were more sensitive to it because we, we kind of saw that from the very beginning. Absolutely. It, it, it I mean, I, I was just sitting there saying, you know, why now when, yeah. when that happened and, and he did lose some support uh, because as you said, these were there were beyond warning signs. There were red right. flags that were thrust in, in, in your face from the very beginning about his true feelings about anyone who's basically yeah. different than he is. Right. Um, But a lot of people will 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 look at that and say, you know, such and such evangelicals support Trump. And they'll say, well, those aren't real evangelicals Mm. or those aren't my evangelicals. Um, and, and, And they'll sort of make the argument that however the pollsters or the media is using that term isn't accurate. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I do want to say
0: right here that um, I am thankful for a number of white evangelical leaders who did step up early, you know, the Russell Moores, uh, the Max Lacatos. you know, these are individuals who I would say, you know, thank you for the the courage and it took courage, especially for someone like Russell Moore and the Southern Baptist Convention uh, to speak against the Republican candidate. I mean, that was, that took a lot of courage and I really respect these individuals who are willing to do that. Um, at the same time, I I, I I do get this argument, wait, you know, these aren't real evangelicals. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still trying to find a huge contingency among my friends who uh, are going to vote for Trump. Uh, and I don't. I don't find that. I find people who are kind of grappling over whether they're going to vote at all, whether they're going to vote for Clinton or not vote at all, or third party and all of that. Um, so I don't find that huge contingency. But uh, but if I'm, if I'm tracking both the numbers and some of the larger social media uh, 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 situations, uh, then those who still identify as evangelical, and uh, there still is a very high percentage. Uh, And so I understand the belief that not all evangelicals are going to vote for Trump, which I I, I think it's true, Uh, it still feels like an unacceptable percentage. Uh, And we can slice and dice that percentage any way we want. But if it's close to the 70% that I saw in some of the latest polls, I can't say that all 70% of white those who identify as white evangelicals are not Bible-believing Christians. Uh, so, I mean, I do understand that evangelical has become a political category, and they're the people who are going to vote and identify as evangelicals who maybe have not been in a church for several years. Uh, but I, I, I can't I can't believe that all seventy percent of white, those who identify as white evangelicals are are in that category, uh, and that's where I think the concern would be uh, that uh, the good intentioned moderate folks, uh, and this is where Dr. King's words are so powerful from the Birmingham Jail, uh, that I and, you know I'm not am I worried about the extreme right wing alt right neo-Nazi racists, yeah, because they're out there now and they're more visible. I'm worried about those who will ignore them to vote for a party candidate simply because um, he's he's a candidate. So I'm not worried about the extreme voices on the far right. I'm worried about these moderate voices who claim Christian faith and who are supporting a candidate that has clearly demonstrated extreme racist views. And I don't know how else to say it, except these are extreme racist views. Um, and, you know, people can disagree with me about that, but I I really don't know how else
1: to describe the views that he's put out there. As we wrap up, let's wrap up on a practical note. Um, sure. In, in light of uh, what uh, my co-host Tyler Burns would call the year of the L's, the year of the losses, Um, um mm-hmm. There's So much kind of negative news out there. Yeah. Everything from the death of the music artist Prince to mm. this current election cycle. Although the Cubs did win, so amen. <laughs> can we can we start a new New Year like just today, uh, November third? Happy Happy New Year! That would be um, good. Yeah, a year to <laughs> come. But. Uh, Prophetic lament, I think, it, it really captures what a lot of us are feeling. We may not have the solutions, we may not um, know how to fix all of the things that we're we're saddened over. But a biblical response is lament. So, yeah. can you talk about just briefly um, in a church, what yeah. does that look like to exercise biblical prophetic lament?
0: Yeah, and I'm pretty excited that I'm seeing uh, some good responses from a lot of different corners. Uh, And it's not necessarily my book, but I think there's a real renewed interest in the discipline and practice of lament. Uh, I think it's appropriate that um, when we encounter a situation that we really don't know what to do about – Um, and, um, this, this, the shooting after shooting, after shooting of unarmed black men, especially, uh, by law enforcement, uh, it's just, what do you do with that? I mean, there's just, you know, if you, if you try to rationalize that out, that the people who are supposed to protect us, uh, that's not happening in certain segments of our society. It it challenges all of our preconceived notions about equality and fairness in our society. Um, so where do you go? And I think what lament does is it allows the people to express that frustration, express that pain, uh, instead of covering it up and say, let's all join hands, sing Kumbaya, and I love you mans, and race is no longer a problem. Uh, What it does is it allows the marginalized and the broken to speak up and to hear their voices uh, in the midst of of the people Uh, so in terms of a very practical way I I really have been challenging uh, churches to reintroduce scripture reading that comes from the Lament Psalms uh, or the Book of Lamentations itself uh, for pastors to re-examine their preaching schedule Um, it's been noted by uh, Dr. Hopkins at, uh, at Wesley Seminary that among the liturgical traditions that even if laments are in the preaching schedule or in the hymn, hymn schedule, they skip over it and they just kind of drop it. Let's reintroduce those hymns and songs. Uh, let's pay more attention to the laments that are out there. Uh, uh, I love what you wrote about uh, Kendrick Lamar as a as a, as a lament. Uh, that was you, right? I remember reading an article uh,
1: uh, about that. Right. That was a great article. I believe Alan Noble wrote that one, uh, but it's right along the same lines of what you're talking about. Uh, and, And that's just beautiful to pay
0: attention to what's going on out there in the world and say there are laments already out there. There are other Kendrick Lamars out there who are are speaking out a lament. The Beyonces are speaking out a lament. Uh, You know, these are laments that are out there. Let's pay attention to those, and let's make sure that the lament of a generation does not get lost because we are so caught up in the superficiality of our success. Uh, So I would say that there are so many places in our liturgy, in our worship life, where we can reintroduce the themes of lament and reintroduce the practice of lament in our prayer meetings, in our worship songs. Uh, in our liturgies, in our preaching, in our small group Bible studies, uh, there are many places where lament can be reintroduced into our into our lives.
1: That is really helpful. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Rai. Uh, we'll we'll include links to your book. Um, You've been so helpful, and your voice and perspective right now is is incredibly valuable. We're honored that you would join us on the show. Let's do this again sometime. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's p-o-d-a-s-t-e-r-y.com.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more.
1: Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.